This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. I said... Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends, and thanks for joining us here on Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show to the original series. My name is Drew, or Landru, and this is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hello. And we're also joined today by Mark Cushman. Hello there. Hey. Mark is the author of These Are the Voyages, the series of the, uh, what I would call the definitive behind-the-scenes uh, of the original series, the production of each episode. Uh, but but we're actually not going to talk about that today. It, a few days ago, from from our point of view, uh, Leonard Nimoy passed away, and so we decided we'd take an episode. Mark offered to to come and and talk to us, and and we'll we'll remember Nimoy together. Yeah. So so Mark, um, I guess just to start this off, what was it about Nimoy in particular that? made him so important to Star Trek. You know, I mean, like, lots of times you, you, there's actors in roles, and they may be the, the star of the show or whatever, and obviously that's very significant, but it seems like with Nimoy in particular, what he brought to the franchise was much more than just playing Spock. Yeah, well, you know, he co-created that character. Uh, if you read these books uh, that I've done, you see his memos and, and uh, to Gene Roddenberry uh, as he comes up with the, um, the Vulcan nerve pinch, as he comes up with the Vulcan salute, and he's very protective of the character. And that wasn't an actor being difficult. That was an actor who had a lot vested into this character. And so he would see the scripts, and if it didn't feel right, if, if, if he knew that this isn't something Spock would do, you know, he would take a stand. And, and you see that in book three with the episode Whom Gods Destroy, to where he just wasn't going to come on stage and play what they had written because it was um, belittling of the Spock character that Spock couldn't figure out which Kirk was the fake Kirk. You know, a guy that he's known and worked for for all these decades, he would certainly have a means of figuring it out in that particular episode. So he, he was uh, uh, a very serious actor, a very intuitive actor. And the other thing, not only did he co-create the character in that regard, but even before that process began, Roddenberry wrote the part for Leonard Nimoy. Roddenberry knew who was going to play Spock. He knew who he wanted. He had the picture. Lee Nimoy had appeared in an episode of The Lieutenant. He liked his bone structure. He liked his voice. He liked just just the uh, the way he came across. And he knew this this is my guy. So it was written for that actor in particular, and then that actor took uh, custody of the character and helped develop it. So you don't just have an actor playing a part. You have an actor creating a part. That's part of it. And then I think more in line to what, what you asked is um, he understood this character. You know, this is, this, this is the greatest character in literature because drama, it's storytelling, is all about conflict. And Spock had internal conflict. You know, you see Hamlet get up there on stage and to be or not to be and all the things that Shakespearean actors would go through and uh, characters would go through with their self-angst and their self-questioning. 
well, that was Spock. And he kept it very cool and very in control most of the time, but there were episodes where they would show us uh, the insecurity inside the character and the dilemma that the character was facing. And I think all of us, through the decades since Star Trek came on 50 years ago, you know, we all were probably teenagers when we started watching it, even if people were just starting now watching it probably as, as teenagers. And this character really speaks to us because that's what a teenager goes through, the two sides of our personality. And we think we're the only ones who feel the way we feel, so we don't feel comfortable confiding in anybody about what we're feeling. And, uh, and that's a Vulcan, and that's Spock being half Vulcan. So he's got these two sides of his personality in constant conflict. And the only person he confides in on rare occasion is Kirk. And, of course, McCoy can see through it, too, but uh, he tries not to tell McCoy. Well, Leonard Nimoy understood that. And and being such a serious actor and a method actor and, and so forth, you know, he was able to really um, get into that character and get into the sides of the, the, the conflict and the dilemma he was feeling. So not only did he physically, was he perfect for that role, but what was inside was perfect for that role. And we saw it. And, we, and, and it, we connected with it. And I think you can get all the other actors to play this role over the decades to come, and they may do a decent job, but they're mimicking Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because, you know, I mean, sort of from the outsider perspective and, and a lot of the, the reasons why, you know, I think people see him as the, the face of Star Trek is, is because, you know, he's very identifiable in terms of the original cast in particular, and that, you know, he's the guy with the pointed ears and everything, and he was sort of like the, you know, to an outsider's perspective, like the token alien. But the thing that that really is sort of all about that character is the fact that he is also half-human. And it seems like Nimoy really did have a, a really strong uh, understanding of that, and that that's what made it unique. Not that he was just a weird alien guy, but that he was someone who was struggling to be both. Yeah, and that's why I mentioned method acting, and that was a type of acting that was popular in the 50s and 60s when they would go to the uh, the acting studio in New York, and as Nimoy did, and it it uh, they they taught you to just get into this character to the point to where you would almost lose who you are. And so many people I interviewed for these books would talk about this. They would say they were in makeup. The guest stars would come on. And they'd be sitting in the makeup room, and Leonard Nimoy would be gracious and friendly and, 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 and laugh and smile. And he would sit there, and they'd start putting this makeup on. And he's looking at himself in the mirror as the makeup goes on. And slowly his personality goes away, and he would become Spock. And he would stay Spock through the entire day until they took the makeup off. And these guest stars were always amazed by that. Each one of them would comment to me about that process. And, of course, Shatner, being the cut-up on, on set that he was, was always trying to get, and, and DeForest Kelly, too, uh, were always trying to get uh, Leonard to break character and laugh. And you see pictures in our books where he does do that on occasion, but he would try so hard not to. He would try to stay in the moment in that character. And, and so that's part of the method acting process that, that he went through. And uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, uh, and most actors aren't trained that way anymore. So it really is. And you look at the books he wrote in the 1970s, which a lot of people misunderstood at the time when they came out. It was, I am not Spock. And then several years later, I am Spock. And we were thinking, well, make up your mind. No, he did make up his mind. And if you read the books, you'll see it's fascinating that, he, that Spock and Leonard Nimoy are having a conversation with each other. He writes it as dialogue, where he talks to this other side of his personality, 
and and he did that. You know, he really did that. And and as we all do, I suppose, <laughs> I'm sure all of us sit around and have conversations down then. Well, Mark, what are we going to do about this? I don't know, Mark. Maybe we should do this. You know, I think we all do that to a certain degree. If not, I just made a fool of myself. But but uh, he he would do that and and to a degree much further than what we we do. And so that was the two sides of his personality. And he was always married to that character. You know, I, a lot of us who are old enough remember that when they did the first movie and the second movie, we're thinking, well, is, is he going to come back and play this part? It seems like he doesn't want to. No, he always wanted to, and he didn't want anybody else to play it. You know, but he didn't want to play it if it was going to be something that was going to be harmful to the character. And that's what you see when you read book three and you read the chapter on whom gods destroy, is he didn't want uh, Spock compromised in who he was. And a lot of actors don't worry about that. You'll see a series, and they'll just kind of lose the characterization as the series goes along. He never did. Did you have a, a chance to to talk to him uh, for this book or for these books? Yes, yes, I did. Um, it, it's it's really interesting. Um, we we contacted him through his representatives originally to interview him, as we did with everybody, and he very very politely declined because he had written his own books and he'd given so many interviews over the decades and he felt that he didn't have anything more to add to it. But um, after the first book came out, he contacted me. And um, I teach screenwriting at uh, a college here in Los Angeles, Pierce College. And the, uh, I got home one day. I went over, actually, I went over to CBS that day to do an interview for um, a box set on Next Generation. They were doing a celebration of Gene Roddenberry's life in that particular box set. And they wanted to interview me, so I went over and, and did an interview with them. And I get home, and there's a phone call from um, uh, the administration office at Pierce. And they say, you know, we usually don't give out phone numbers for our instructors, but somebody called trying to get your phone number, and he said it, his name was Leonard Nimoy. And we don't know if it's the Leonard Nimoy. You know? <laughs> and they gave me the number, and, and so I called him, and he picked up his home number, and he picked up the phone. and. We had a terrific conversation, and he said he had read the book, and and uh, he thought the research was astounding and all this stuff, and he was very complimentary and very nice. And we just started talking, and he, and he said, well, you know, you got one thing wrong in this book. Um, not that you got it wrong, but you, you printed what other people said, and they got it wrong. And it was on the origin of the years. And he said, let me tell you the true story of the origin of the years. And I said, well, can I turn on a recorder and get this and he said of course and so I interviewed him and then when we did the revised edition of book one we put all that in and we put in quotes in the other books as well so I ended up getting my interview with him but it was because he read the first book and being protective of the character and wanting the true history told you know that got him to contact me and he said you know these, these books are right on the mark but here's, here's one story that isn't quite John Chambers did not create the ears and John Chambers took credit for it. Uh, and John Chambers is a fantastic makeup artist who did Planet of the Apes and so many other things. But uh, but he told stories how he made the ears, and he did. He was part of the team that made the ears, but people misinterpreted that as the fact that he was the first guy. And he said, no, no, I want the first guy to get credit. And so he started telling me all these stories about it and the process that they went through. And that's all in the revised uh, book one. Wow, that's pretty awesome. 
you were talking before about uh, you know his sort of history through the the, the years and how um, when when the movies came about, there were a lot of people who were wondering if he wanted to come back and and all that stuff. And uh, Star Trek Three uh, is an interesting uh, point in the the history of of the character and and Nimoy's association with Star Trek because, well, for two things: one, obviously, his character was was dead at that point in time so bringing him back would have been a really big deal but also the fact that that's the first uh movie that he directed and um you know drew and i you know we grew up in the next gen era and we're always sort of uh fascinated by what it would be like to be a fan as all of this stuff was actually happening you know just kind of like we are now with with these new movies and stuff and uh, we're curious from from the perspective of someone who had grown up with Star Trek as these movies were coming out. What was your reaction and the general fan reaction to first that Spock was coming back, but also that Nimoy was going to be directing the new Star Trek movie? Oh, we were thrilled because you know we we knew that that Leonard Moy really uh, understood this character and understood the show and understood the fans. And so knowing that he was going to be in the director's seat and, and a director in a motion picture is the top guy. In TV, it's the writer-producer, but in, uh, in movies, it's the director. So you know he's going to be working with the writers and, and co-writing the scripts, even if he doesn't take a writing credit. So he'd be involved in every aspect of the production. So you've got somebody sitting in that chair who completely gets it. He understands all the characters of the show, the theme of the show, uh, the nuances of his own character. And, and the serious, the subject matter of Star Trek and the themes of Star Trek. And so we knew we were going to get something special. And we, and we did with him. Uh, always, whether somebody else was directing him, we got, we got it from him as a performer. But with him as a director, we knew it was going to be special. You know, it, it, uh, it, he, the resistance he had about coming back uh, was it, he wanted it to be good. Every time they contacted him, for instance, the animated series in 73, and I have an interesting story about how that came together as well. But um, he, uh, you know, he said, well, I don't want to do a cartoon. And he didn't mean that as an actor, like it's beneath me as an actor. He just said, will this be beneath Star Trek? And so they came forward and they said, no, no, we've got Gene Roddenberry and we've got Dorothy Fontana and she's going to be... Uh, rewriting the scripts and we're bringing in the original writers from the show and we're getting the entire cast together to do the voices. And he knew that, okay, this is going to be a, uh, an authentic, proper extension of Star Trek. And in animation form, we'll be able to show things we couldn't show in the, in the original series, uh, but we'll still do it with the same seriousness, unless it's an episode like more tribbles, more trouble, you know, and, and then we'll, but it will, it'll be a serious approach to the comedy. And so that appealed to him, and that's why he agreed to do it. An interesting story about uh, uh, the animated series to show you the character of Leonard Nimoy is that he um, found out that they weren't going to bring back George Takei, Michelle Nichols, and Walter Koenig because they didn't have it in their budget. So they were going to get James Doohan to do the voices of Sulu and, uh, and Chekhov, and they were going to get uh, Majel to do the voice of Uhura. And he said no. He said, you're not going to use their likeness, and you're not going to mimic their voices. These characters help create these, these actors help create these characters. 
And if they're not going to be part of the show, I'm not going to be part of the show. And he took a stand for them. And they are eternally grateful to him for that. Now, Walter didn't get into the show because they just didn't have the money. But what they did was they, they offered him a script assignment. And if he had wanted to do a second script, they would have allowed him to do that as well. So th this is doesn't that sound like Spock? I mean, that's one of the reasons we love Spock is because of his loyalty to Kirk and to the others. I mean, these are humans. These are people that he only half relates to. And yet he would give his life for them, and he would he would devote his life to being next to them. And Leonard did the same thing with his fellow actors. That is rare. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was lucky enough to be at his last um, convention appearance, and, you know, he, he basically gave a, a speech, you know, there. And listening to him, it really did sound like he like a, a lot of the sort of ideals and philosophies of of Spock were very much present in Nimoy. I mean it he he is Spock yeah. as as the book says, you know. Um yeah. Yeah. He thought on the same lines as Spock did. He thought about issues as deeply as Spock did. He found the human experience as curious as Spock did and 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 would study it and analyze it and try to find his place in it. And, and again, it's, it's like a, a, we all do in life, especially in our teen years, as we try to find ourselves. And, uh, and that's, that's how he handled it. He had great intellect, but, but he was always examining the emotional aspect of the human experience as well. And so he was that character. And, and anybody else who plays that part will be lucky. And I hope it, it happens that we find somebody who can invest himself into the character to the degree that that he has you know but it, it's going to be a hard uh it's going to be hard to go that far because he's he was a rare type of an actor yeah he was and 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 a lot of the uh you know stuff that he brought to it it, it seems like uh has has a lot to do with the fact that he was much more than an actor uh, in general, you know, with his his photography and his his directing and and everything like that, um, when when you saw Star Trek three or, or or now looking at it, you know, as as someone who has directed stuff himself and and everything, how do you feel that his his talents of a director are? How, how do you feel that he stacks up to you know say the other Star Trek directors or whatever? Well, I think Nicholas Meyer did the, the best job of any of them, and I think Leonard Nimoy came in second. And uh, uh, But, you know, when I say Nicholas Meyer was the best, I'm looking at Wrath of Khan. I, I, I think uh, the two movies Leonard did were better than Undiscovered Country. So Nicholas flew above him for one movie and slightly under him for the other two, and Undiscovered Country is a good good movie. But, but I think uh, Leonard certainly understood it, where Robert Weiss, who was a brilliant film director, didn't really know Star Trek well enough and didn't relate to the characters well enough to bring it across. And uh, I'm preparing a book now for next year uh, for release, uh, which is uh, going to be the fourth volume of These Are the Voyages, because the story of TOS doesn't end in 1969. You know, that, that is a temporary death of Star Trek. And everybody thinks it's dead, and then it just keeps growing. It it it's, it takes on a life of its own, which is too interesting of a, a topic to ignore. And uh, so 
uh, this book is going to cover the 1970s with the animated series, the aborted Phase Two series, Star Trek the Motion Picture, and the early 1980s with uh, the first couple movies in the 80s. And it's going to stop on the eve of Next Generation when Paramount finally decides they're ready to do another Star Trek series and they want Gene to do it. Well, TOS will continue for several more years uh, simultaneously, but that was where the uh, the torch was handed off in many ways. And so it takes us right up to that moment. And uh, But that that's also a concluding moment for TOS in many ways, because as we'll find out in book four, uh, Paramount hadn't been sharing the profits from the series until that point, and they had to now in order to get Gene to come back and so forth. So closure was finally put on uh, Star Trek as far as uh, sharing with the people who helped make it. So it was an interesting journey. Uh, I'll tell you one little glimpse of what's going to be in the fourth book as well. Uh, I mentioned an interesting story about uh, the animated series. NBC realized they had made a mistake almost instantly when they took uh, Star Trek off the air. They never appreciated it when they had it. And then after they canceled it and it started exploding in syndication and man walks on the moon within months of them canceling it, they realized, okay, we shouldn't have done this. And so they were trying to get it back. One year after they canceled it, they were trying to get the series back. And Paramount wouldn't give it back to them because Paramount was making too much money in syndication and didn't realize that they could do new episodes and people would still watch the old episodes at the same time. So they kept saying no. And every year NBC kept coming back and saying, can we have it now? Can we have it for this season? And finally Paramount said, well, we'll give it to you as an animated show on Saturday mornings because that won't compete with the hour-long episodes that are being shown five nights a week. And so this battle was going on for 10 years over bringing Star Trek back. Now, for those of us who were around back then, we couldn't understand why the show wasn't coming back on the air. We knew it was the most popular show in syndication, the most popular show around the world in 40 different languages around the planet. And, and so why aren't they making new ones? Well, it all comes down to business. And the people that had the right to say whether it was going to be made or not didn't have the understanding that we can make new ones and still sell the old ones. So that was the big uh, stumbling block that they had to get through. And so there's a lot of interesting behind-the-scenes stories from the 70s that this, this series of books wouldn't be complete if I didn't get into that. But you also see, getting back to Leonard Nimoy from that period, you know, he was trying to find himself. Now, most actors, their careers would be over. You create a character that is that iconic and that recognizable. How are you going to play anything else? So he was very wise to go straight into Mission Impossible, where he could play a character who was a master of disguises and play different types of roles and, and so forth. And then he went on to stage, and he did a Vincent van Gogh program and, and uh, many things to show people that he was a serious actor and he could stretch. And then, after he had proven that point, he was ready to go back and play Spock. Yeah, I, just going back to the, the book four thing there, I mean, I, there's a, a lot of people, ourselves included, who are very happy to hear that because, you know, I mean, these books are obviously amazing, and, you know, there is all that history after the series ends, and, and, and everyone's been, you know, saying, like, are we going to get, you know, and are we going to get anything else? Yeah. The movies? I mean, that's great. Every time we talk about the animated series, we're just like, you know, maybe Mark will tell us about that in book four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That makes us very happy to hear. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you a little announcement uh, here, too. Uh, well, this is the first uh, official announcement I think I've made about book four, but I can't be sure. 
but this is the first time I'll tell anybody this. There, there's going to be a, a book five as well, and that's going to be on the first year of Next Generation. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, I had a meeting with um, David Gerald um, a few weeks ago and interviewed him, but he gave me uh, all the memos that he had been keeping from that first year of developing the, the Next Generation, creating the Next Generation, so you'll know who came up with what ideas, who came up with the Ferengi, who came up with all these things. Because you had Gene Roddenberry in there, but you also had Dorothy Fontana and Bob Justman and David Gerald and so many people. And all these memos are fascinating. He gave me this giant box of memos, which I've been sorting and going through. So we're planning uh, book four of these are the voyages for next year for the 50th anniversary. And then in 2017, we're going to bring out a book on the first year of Next Generation, and that'll be the 30th anniversary of Next Generation in 2017. So those will be a couple projects that are coming up for me. Wow, that's really wow. exciting. Very, very happy to hear that. Uh, I, I'm overwhelmed. I'm kind of, I'm kind of like um, Al Pacino in Godfather 3. <laughs> Just when I come out, they pull me back in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's great. Uh, and I've... if anybody listening is thinking, oh, come on, Mark, you're making money off of this stuff. Not really. You know, but you, you don't make that much money off of books anymore. People don't read as much as they used to. And, of course, there's a split with the publishing and, and everything else and the cost of, of doing books, especially books this massive and everything else but you know i'm doing a book on lost in space for uh the 50th anniversary coming up in september so that's what i'm on right now and then i go back into the fourth book on star trek which is already about a third written and most of the research is complete on that still have some interviews i need to collect and so on so and and, and you may say lost in space mark what are you thinking well first of all I'm old enough. <laughs> I, mean, I was like around nine when Lost in Space came on the air the year before Star Trek came on. So it was the first show of that type that we had. You know, we had uh, anthologies like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. This is the first one to actually go into space on a weekly basis with regular characters and uh, on, on network TV like this. And it, it was uh, it just captured our imagination. Now, it kind of morphed into something else as it went along. But as a writer... I'm fascinated. I want to know what were they thinking? Why were these decisions made? And that's what I do in my books is I go back to the, the memos and the communications with the network and the ratings and the reviews and everything that was happening at that time so you can understand why would we take a show that seems to be working and change it into something else. And uh, and I had to find that out. And so that's that we're, what we're going to get this September when that book comes out. But but I am happy to get back onto Star Trek at that point because I really feel that the job would be left incomplete if I didn't do the uh, the fourth book on TOS. And a lot of people have been asking me, "Well, are you going to do Next Generation?" And I said, "Well, I don't know," B because for me, it's it's not just paying tribute to a show, but is there something for me to contribute? Is there enough information there that hasn't been told before to make it worth doing? Well, after going through these memos that David Gerald handed off to me, and he said, just do, do me a favor, organize them for me. <laughs> he hasn't looked at that box since he left the show, but he kept everything. He said, you organize it, and I'll let you use it. And I said, well, okay, let me see what's in there. And I start going through this box and separating all the memos out, and I'm saying, holy cows, this is really a lot of drama here and and a lot of uh, and not just drama but also uh, good tribute to the various people that were involved like we did with um, these three books on next generation I was really happy that we can find out how much Bob Justman contributed to the show he never got credit 
you know, we always saw his name on the show, his associate producer. What does that mean? And we knew he was the nuts and bolts guy that they would hand the script to him and he would have to find a way to get it done on the set with his, his staff. But uh, nobody realized that he was so heavily involved in the in the creative aspect of the writing of the scripts with his memos. And you see that now in the three These Are the Voyages books. You see those wonderful memos from Bob Justman because they're funny, but they're also so insightful as he's picking apart every episode and every script and saying, well, we can't do this, but you should do that. And he's not always talking from a money point of view. A lot of times he's talking from a story point of view and from a character point of view. And you go, all right, Bob. My God, you really were involved in every aspect of this show. So we see that. And somebody, uh, Wes Britton, uh, who did a review of the thing, uh, sent me an email after he did his review. And he said, I didn't realize how much Dorothy Fontana contributed. We all knew she wrote these great scripts, and we all saw her name as script consultant. But we didn't realize that she was so much uh, forethought and sensitivity into all the episodes with the notes that she would give to Gene Kuhn and back and forth. So you really get to know these people. Well, that's going to happen now with the next generation book because we will see David Gerald's contributions, which he didn't get credit for. And we'll see a lot of Dorothy's contributions during that first season and Bob Justman's contributions and so forth through their memos, through their own voices, which we'll see with Leonard Nimoy as well with the uh, book four as, as he uh, works, you know, they wanted him to come back for phase two, and and there were a lot of conversations between him and Roddenberry, and he was willing to do it, but uh, but only if the character was going to be handled right, and that if it was going to be meaningful for Spock to be part of that show and for him to come back and be part of that show, and that's what ended up leading to Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which was supposed to be the two-hour kickoff episode for phase two. You know, uh, talking about. Um... Next Generation. Uh, now, you you actually uh, wrote the episode, which sort of, um, in a way, kind of kicked off the episode that Nimoy appeared in, uh, which was Unification. Um, right. What What did you think about uh, Nimoy's appearance on on Next Generation uh, when you saw it? Wonderful. Uh, you know, I I would have liked to have seen a little more humor in it because we all loved it with the little twinkle in the eye, the little lifted eyebrow and things of that nature. I think next generation handled it uh, a little more seriously than I would have liked to have seen. And when I say serious, I look, you can handle comedy serious, you know, even in uh, trouble with Tribbles, which is such a, uh, an off the wall Star Trek episode, but it's basically an episode about Kirk having a headache. <laughs> he has to deal with all these things. <laughs> and, even, and I have a headache, uh, you know, which is a very normal human reaction. And, and th- so that's what they would do. They say, okay, we're going to take our serious characters, Gene Roddenberry's very serious characters and very serious themes, and we're going to toss in purring balls of hair and see how they're going to react to this. And okay, they're going to start getting a little serious, but they're not, a little silly, but they're not going to forget the serious point of the story. And that's, that's the beauty of Star Trek that they could work comedy in, but still keep the serious themes that were going on. And, and I think next generation sometimes forgot that they could be, the irony could play out very nicely. So I would have liked to have seen a little more irony in in the episode with him. But other than that, other than that minor critique, what's not to love. I, I mean, to see him come back and do it. And the same thing with his appearances in the new movies that they're doing. You know, it's just a, it's a treat. 
And I guess that was kind of um, the next thing that I was going to ask, which was, you know, his his presence in the new movies, um, it, it especially in, in that first one, it really feels like this is sort of like a, a passing of the torch. And, and the fact that they they had um, Nimoy do it, I think, is, is very significant, probably even more so than Shatner. Um, I mean, I know the logistics of the fact that, you know, Shatner's character is dead and everything, but beyond that, even just sort of like symbolically, it seems like it makes sense for it to be Nimoy. Uh, What did you, and there's, there's a lot of people who think that they should have just had a clean break and not have had him even in the movie. But I mean, what do you think about, about this, this idea of sort of like Nimoy passing the baton to the next generate and I think it isn't it wonderful I mean look look you know there was a time uh, about 10 years ago 15 years ago there's a picture I saw that they took that had five US presidents in the same picture you know Jimmy Carter Ronald Reagan Bush you know they, they were all in the same picture because we had five presidents that were still alive at that one moment in time which had never happened before you might get a picture of two presidents the the, the current president and the previous president might have a picture taken together but they had five of them together and and it was like you look at that and you go my god you know how wonderful that somebody had the the uh sense sense to grab a camera (laughs) they had a little summit meeting and they got all these presidents to come together and thank god somebody took a picture this is historic well it's the same thing here that we were able to get the two the two spocks together uh in in one movie like this and and so it does hand off the torch and i'm sure leonard who always thought everything out in great detail uh thought about that you know he didn't just walk on and grab some money and do a quick cameo you know if he was going to do it you know it was going to be there was going to be a point to it and he understood that so clearly and he would work with the writers and directors and he's okay i'll do this but let's let's make it count Let's make it to where there's a reason to be doing it other than just, well, we're going to stick Leonard Nimoy in here. There's got to be a reason for the story, for the for the new characters, uh, for the, your character of Kirk to be able to meet the old Spock and to create that connection. You know, and I ran up against something uh, when, when I pitched uh, Sarak to Gene Roddenberry for Next Generation. You know, I came in uh, with other ideas, which I started pitching, and he shot all of them down. Because uh, he felt that by that time in mankind's development, we would jettison a lot of our emotional flaws. And so I said, well, here's a story about greed. Well, we don't have that anymore. And here's a story about, uh, you know, envy. Well, we don't have that anymore. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, Gene, you're taking all the fun stuff out of literature. (laughs) (laughs) If you make man this perfect, it's going to be boring. And, and I think the first couple years of Next Generation were a little bit boring. I think they, they got way better as that show went along. But if you look at just those first few seasons, they're struggling because they're not allowing the characters to have the faults that we need to see. And so I kind of struck out with each of these stories I came in. I didn't even get to tell them the stories. I would just start to tell them the theme, and he'd say, no, no. And so I had this one in my back pocket, which was Sarek, which I wasn't even planning to pitch. And uh, and so he said, well, do you have anything else, Mark? Because I'd really like to give you something. We'd known each other for a few years, and I'd interviewed him for the Voyage's books, which, of course, took another 30 years to come out. But um, uh, he said, you know, do you have something else? And, and I said, well, you know, how 
how old does a Vulcan live to be? And he said, well, we never really decided, but we figured three, 400 years would be reasonable. And, uh, uh, and I said, well, then, then Sarek could still be alive in this, in this age. And Mark Leonard is still alive. So why not bring Mark Leonard back on the show? And he said, well, why would we do that? And I said, because I'm curious what would happen to a Vulcan if he's going through senility. And the minute I said that, Gene was playing with some gadget on his desk, a Rupert's Cube or something. I don't know. Something he's twirling around in his hand and staring at. And he just stopped looking at it. And he looked over at me. And I thought, oh, I got his attention. <laughs> and, uh, and and so we just started talking. He said, well, what would happen if a Vulcan went through senility? And I said, well, I don't. I think they they try so hard to hide what they feel, especially a 100% Vulcan. That, but they're a little bit tel- telepathic. And so if you've got all this internal angst going on and you're sitting next to Riker, maybe it's going to start to manifest itself in him. And maybe he's going to go challenge Picard on some of his orders or do something like that. And I was thinking, you know, I can get a little fire into these characters. Let them have some conflict with each other. And and you can't blame them. You can't say, well, humanity has moved beyond this. No, they don't understand why they're behaving this way, but they're picking up on Sarek's internal conflict. And And he liked it. And so I wrote it, and two things happened with that one. Uh, first of all, he said, he said it's too. Uh, well, the first thing was he said it was. Um, he started having uh, concerns about bringing Sarek back. He said, I'm not sure if we're ready for this, because we're just in our. We just finished our first season, and uh, they were get starting to put stories together for the second year. He said, I really feel we need to get our own identity before we start bringing characters from the original show back in. So maybe it should be a different Vulcan. Maybe it should be another character. And he wanted it rewritten for that purpose, which I really didn't want to do. And so I brought in a a guy named Jake Jacobs, who I did some work with to do a new draft of it. But the other thing is he said, you're you're writing it too much like TOS. and And I really want Next Generation to have a different feel to it. Uh, the pacing that you're writing is more TOS pacing and so forth. And so I may have to have somebody else rewrite you. And I said, that's fine. Just take the story because I think it's a great story. And so it ended up going. And Michael Piller was the one who said, no, no, let's, it's got to be Sarek. Let's let's put him back in. And they went back to the original source material. And then they had Peter Beagle do a, a final teleplay on that. But that, that uh, the reason I brought that up is you, you talked about passing the torch on yeah. in the new movies. And and I wanted to see that too. I felt they they'd had DeForest Kelly do a little walk by cameo in, in uh, Encounter at Farpoint, the uh, the first episode, but they didn't say it's McCoy. We just kind of hey, is that I think that's DeForest Kelly under all that makeup as he's asking which way to this part of the ship or something. And uh, and I thought no no, let, it, it, you really need to have somebody hand off the torch to the new crew, and that's the other reason I wanted to do Sarek. So we did that, and and I think that that's what J.J. Abrams did in in the new movie by having Nimoy come in. I think Nimoy understood that, and I think that's why those scenes work so well, because they knew what it was they were doing. From a writing point of view, if you know what the theme is, if you know what your goal is with any particular scene or story, what it is you're trying to accomplish, you make that scene so much more interesting, and the actors pick up on it, and then they make it so much more interesting. So it's that, that approach to, to acting and that approach to writing. Well, Nimoy understood that, and he did that in, in all of his writing. And you mentioned his photography, too. That's why his photography is so good. He's not just taking pictures of things and, and trying to find a different, an interesting angle, uh, camera angle to use. 
he's there's a there's a theme to his pictures in what he's doing. He knows what emotion he wants to get out of us with his photographs. That's a true artist. Now, I I'm I've not been heavy into Star Trek until like the last 10 years or so. So this is my first loss. Like my my And, first... and you're and you're and you're 12, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 31. And anyway, uh, <laughs> my my question is uh how do you how do you deal with this? Like I've I've never met I never met any of the actors. But uh, I just don't know. I don't know how to handle something like this. Like, like, should I watch as many episodes as possible to like get it out of my system, or do I like leave leave it alone for a bit, maybe to to just contemplate? Well, the tradition of man—not all religions, not all societies—but I think the ones that work really well, like the Irish. You know, you've, you've got your great Irish wake. And and uh, the the Jewish people do that too. They, they'll they'll have a big gathering with food and try to make it festive. And there'll be a lot of crying, but there'll be a lot of laughing as they uh, mourn the loss of the, that loud noise you're hearing as squirrels running across the uh, the patio <laughs> roof here. Uh, I put peanuts out for the squirrels, and they all come to get them, and they trample across the top of the thing, and then they go away. Um, and that's not off the subject. That's part of celebrating life, you know, celebrating all of our little creatures. Spock would have approved. Uh, but the uh, uh, you, you, you go through the emotional process. You go through the mourning. Uh, you go through the celebration, and you let them live side by side because that's life. Uh, you know, life has has tragedy and comedy interwoven. At every moment, and and Star Trek understood that. That's why Star Trek could do a comedy episode and still have serious themes and a serious point to it. You know, because a comedy script is a dramatic script. It's got a dramatic structure, a dramatic story structure. And and as long as you're aware of that and you keep the the point of your material, it's interesting. And then you add the jokes in. Well, that's awake too. As you go there, knowing you're going to talk, you're going to remember the serious parts of this person's personality, the things you loved about them, and are going to miss terribly about them. And you're going to allow yourself to cry, and you're going to go through all that. But at the same time, you're going to be open to laughing, and you're not disrespecting the person at their at their uh, death scene by laughing, because you're laughing at the wonderful humor that they put in there. Nimoy did it himself uh, in Wrath of Khan. I saw they ran this clip on um, a news show the other night, and of course they didn't explain it, so it came off a little clumsy. They they just showed the part where he's in the chamber and he's been exposed to all the radiation, and he gets up, and he does two things which which are brilliant. If you know the character and you're watching the whole scene, if you're just watching the little clip on the news, it seems well that's a little awkward. But but if you're watching the movie, you know he gets up and the first thing he does is he kind of tugs on his um, his turnout. He, he pulls it down. You know, make sure he looks proper, and then he takes a step forward and he bumps into the um, the, the the plexiglass. You know, um, so Nimoy put that in, and and he knew that okay, this may come off a little funny, but life is funny. You're trying to act so dignified. This is your great death scene, and you're gonna you're gonna bump into the wall. You know, so he put that in because that's life. So go ahead, and it's okay to laugh. And and it's, it, so I, I would say watch the shows. I I, I would say uh, experience it. Let yourself experience the grief, but also let yourself experience um, uh, the love.
for the material and for the character and the performance and uh, and feel free to laugh. You know, he could do more with a raised eyebrow than anybody. You know, they didn't have to give him a lot of lines. They would, but, you know, they'd always have Spock explain everything. But they could just cut to him, no matter what scene they were shooting. In the movies or the original series, whatever was going on, and Kirk is doing his big speeches and everything else, they would always put in close-ups of, of, of Spock so we could see his eyebrow raised or the little nod of the head or the little twinkle in his eye, uh, just a slight turn of the lips as, as he's trying not to smile, but you can tell that he's a little amused by what he just heard. And they would put those in there because his reactions were great. A reaction is so much more important than action. You know, the reaction makes it work. Same thing in audiences. You know, you get on stage and you're doing comedy. The thing that makes the comedy work is the audience laughing, which is why for decades we they did laugh tracks on shows as obnoxious as they were because without the audience laughing, the material just didn't feel funny. So reaction is very important, and Leonard Nimoy was the master of reaction. So watch those episodes and notice what he's doing. Notice the reactions that he's doing and what and, and the different dimensions to the character that he brings forward in every single scene and celebrate his life and celebrate his work and his talent and his integrity. And and if you get a tear in the eye, that's okay. That's that's he would approve, Spock would approve. And um you know, he'd say, You humans, why do you feel you need to do this? But but he would approve. Well, thank you very much for for joining us today, Mark. It's it's been sort of great to to take a look at you know uh, Leonard Nimoy in his career and kind of take a, a peek behind the scenes and see what really uh, went on to make this this character that we love so much you know work so well. So thank you yeah. very much. Don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to watch him. I'm saying this to everybody listening. You know. Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, when my dad passed away, we knew he was dying, uh, of cancer and it was going to be, uh, our last holidays with him. So I brought a video camera. This was decades ago and, uh, and shot it. And he was a really good sport. Cause I have a feeling he knew why I was shooting it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I was trying to make it seem fun. Hey, I'm going to shoot everybody, you know, opening up gifts and all this stuff. No. And, uh, I've never looked at it. I've never had the courage to look at this because I don't want to experience what I might feel. So I'm being a hypocrite here in saying watch Star Trek. But, you know, in watching it, there's a healing that will come across because you will you will see uh, you, you you give um, you give credit and appreciate appreciation to his hard work in watching it. And that's that's the best thing we could do right now. Thank you very much, guys. Agreed. Th thank you very much. It's been great. Yes. Thanks. That was nice talking with Mark today, but we forgot to actually plug uh, where you can buy copies of These Are the Voyages. Oh, yeah. Yes. So uh, if you go to thesearethevoyagesbooks.com, you can pick up volumes one through three, and that's where uh, four and five will be released in 2016 and 2017, respectively. But Leonard Nimoy was just one of the Trek topics we've been talking about on Trek FM this week, so here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. This episode isn't very good, but... <laughs> Are we just going to pin all of our <laughs> choices? You pretty much have to. But the thing about this episode, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, I think, is it's 
a crazy idea. Earl Grey. Picard, can you construct a, a rudimentary lathe? Go for its weak spot. <laughs> it's an energy being. It doesn't have a vulnerable spot. <laughs> Get off the line, the forge. The orb. Or we could just blame it on Janeway somehow, you know, that she it's scared fault, the Borg into the Gamma Quadrant because they were tired of dealing with her in the Delta Quadrant. I don't know. To the journey! Because this is the dangers, by the way, kids, of having uh, babies in the 24th century. Because if Kathy's first word was coffee and she was standing next to the replicator, the next thing you know, you have a hyped up two-year-old. The ready room. Well, it's kind of like, you know, you've got your lucky shirt when you're watching a football game and your team won when you were wearing it. So now you have to wear it every time. That's also the Enterprise insignia. That's the insignia of the only ship whose crew didn't die. Yeah. So Just wear course. it on the right color shirt. That's all. That's right. Have. Commentary, Trek stars. And then he turns to her and he says, who, who is that man that I was just hugging? And she says, that was William Shatner. And he's like, who? Literary Treks. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really a, a fan of a lot of, you know, different kinds of you know, naval fiction. Uh, you know, I, I, C.S. Forrester, Horatio Hornblower, those novels. So uh, good. Yeah, you know, Patrick O'Brien, uh, you know, the, the Master and Commander books. Uh, you know, these are all things which sort of put me into the right mindset. The 602 Club. So when we come kind of to the story here, and especially off of doing literary treks where we talk about Michael Pillar's book, Fade In, kind of got behind the scenes of, of insurrection and really seeing how the that story changed. To me, it really just exemplified the importance of story in a movie. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, or you can just stream them from the website. You can visit Trek.fm slash podcast to get all the links. Let's tell everyone where they can contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on today's show. They can go to Trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose send to show and then choose standard orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the button on the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using webcam's microphone, and you can talk to us and our other listeners at our Facebook group, The Babel Conference. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trekfm, and on Twitter under username trekfm. Mike, where can people find you out of orbit? Uh, you can find me right here on Trek FM doing commentary Trek stars with Max and John, and we will be doing a Leonard Nimoy series uh, as soon as we're done with our Shatner series. And you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com doing uh, Commentary Trackstars Off Topic with Max and Brandon. And you can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. So how are you guys going to do Nimoy? Uh, we're going to look at the shows that he was featured in, like essentially oh, the cool. shows that he starred in, which would be uh, Mission Impossible and then In Search Of and Ancient Mysteries. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I look forward to that. Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, and on the Babel Conference and on various other places around the internet. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring Standard Orbit to you each week, and our sponsor for the show is Audible.com. Audible's a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible's the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and others, Audible has something for everyone. 
Mike, I'm pretty sure I know what you have for everyone. Yeah, I have a book, uh, which was written by Leonard Nimoy and narrated by him. It's called I Am Spock. Best known to the world as the actor who created the legendary Mr. Spock in the cult television series that launched the Star Trek phenomenon, Leonard Nimoy has written the definitive Star Trek memoir. In this long-awaited autobiography, Nimoy opens up to his fans in ways the Vulcan never could. And you can get this book for free since you listen to Trek FM. Isn't that a little, like, not the truth? Because he'd already written an autobiography. Maybe he didn't open up in that one. Oh, okay. I, I, I've i read, I think I've read them, but there was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I, anyway, you can find out what we're missing for free because you listen to Trek FM. Because uh, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and check it out. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. We'd like to thank Richard Rutledge Jr. for being our associate producer this month. You can find him on Twitter at RUT8972, and we really appreciate him supporting us on Patreon. Yeah, thank you very much. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash T-R-E-K-F-M. And you'll find uh, a list of donation levels there where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project manager, and even be listed as an associate producer like Richard. You'll find out where the donations can go, things like covering the monthly cost of hosting and distribution, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm, so check it out. All right, well, that was good. Uh, next week, we've got John Tenuto. We're going to be talking about Harv Bennett, who also passed away. Yeah, yeah. What's up with that? Come I on. don't know. They come in threes. We had Maurice Hurley, Leonard Nimoy, and, and Harv Bennett. Though Harv Bennett passed away before Nimoy did. Yeah. We just found out later. How about just everyone stops dying? Yeah, that'd be great. All right, cool. Cool. We're all on the same page then? Yes. All right. Yes, I agree. Okay. They need to stop dying. Excellent. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landry. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead. Walk factor one. Hi, sir.